pray for that, and uh, we'll prepare our hearts. Dear Lord, uh, open our hearts today as we prepare this time for your word. Each one of us can find something uh, in this sermon to use, and we pray for Doug's strength and delivering the message to all of us. May our hearts be prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, morning, guys. Are you doing well? <clears throat> Good. Uh, so <clears throat> how many of you were here at some point yesterday during the yard sale? Raise your hand. Thanks to all of you, whether you came and helped by carrying stuff, whether you donated stuff, or whether, like most of us, you bought stuff. I noticed that we're just pretty much exchanging junk with each other every year. That's kind of crazy. You bring your junk, I'll buy it. Next year, I'll bring it back. You buy it. We'll do it like that. Um, but you know what? Whatever. If that's what it takes, that's a good thing because uh, just yesterday, by getting rid of some of our stuff, we got to A, meet a ton of people in the community and introduce ourselves to them and just find out about needs and how we can come alongside of people, invite people to uh, join in what's going on at Grace Fellowship. B, um, we got to have great fellowship together. C, by the way, we raised $2,367.01. So I, I don't know where the one cent came from, but thank you, whoever, whoever threw in that extra penny. But uh, I really do want to thank uh, so many of you guys worked an incredible amount this last week running up to this to get it ready, and then yesterday, and so I just am really, really blessed by that. Um, I want to begin this morning as we get back into the book of Ephesians just by uh, giving you just a little 10-second clip of a video and see if you remember this, uh, if you're old enough to remember this, and the impact that it had on the world. Mr. You remember that? It's kind of a big deal, right? Because uh, shortly after that, what happened to the Berlin Wall? It came down. It didn't fall. <laughs> it got knocked down with sledgehammers. And, uh, and you know, if you, if you pay any attention to politics or history and that kind of stuff, you realize what a significant moment that was in history. Um, when that wall came down, it changed the whole world dramatically. But what I want to share with you today is that there is another wall that has been knocked down that is far, far more significant in its impact than the wall that came down between East and West Berlin. There is a wall that has stood for eons of time that has been knocked down. And because that wall has been knocked down, everything, everything, everything changes. And we're going to be learning more about that in Ephesians chapter 2. So I hope you've got a Bible with you. If you don't, I always want to remind you that um, we are happy to give you a Bible. If you need one, just let us know after the service, and we will be happy to give you a Bible. Um, there's tons of great um, Bibles that you can download free on your smartphones and all that kind of stuff online. I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to have a Bible in your pocket all the time. Those of you that have smartphones or iPads or any of that kind of stuff, it is a tremendous thing to be able, how many times do you find yourself, you know, you show up on time for something, but the other person shows up late, and you're like, okay, what am I going to do? You can get time in the Word. There's always uh, opportunities. So um, we take the Bible really seriously around here. We encourage you to make sure that you do too. 
We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> We've been working through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I want us to pick it up today in chapter 2, looking at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, we're going we're gonna to tear this apart a little bit, and I want you to notice that the first word in verse 11 is therefore. And when we see the word therefore, we ask, what is it? Therefore. Yes, you guys are so smart. What is it therefore? <laughs> why, why does, why, you know, so often we pick up our Bibles and we start reading wherever and we don't have the context straight and we forget what he's referring to. Whenever he says therefore or another word like that, that means he's referring back to a point that he has made or an argument that he has made that is the basis for what he's about to say. And we need to understand that to remember um, what, or to really understand what he's talking about. So when we see that, we got to look back and go, what's he talking about? And what is he talking about here? He's talking about what we've already covered in um, chapter 1 and chapter 2, especially this section in chapter 2 that talks about grace and our salvation coming by grace. He's referring to the fact that God has chosen us. He's referring to the fact that we are adopted by God. He's referring to the fact that God has redeemed us and paid the price for our sin. He's referring to the fact that as we looked at a couple of weeks ago in verse 10, not only did God save us by his grace, but that he has an incredible plan for our lives. And every one of us has a unique plan that he has custom designed us to live out. And so when he says, therefore, that's what he's referring back to. And he's saying, therefore, because all of that is true, because I've just given you all this reason to rejoice and all this reason to hope and all this reason to celebrate, I want to remind you of something. Remember who you used to be. It is too easy for us, isn't it? Especially if you've been a Christian, you've been walking with God for a long time, it is really too easy for us to forget what it was like before we knew him. To forget the kind of darkness and the kind of hopelessness that people walk in when they don't know Jesus. When he is the light of the world and you don't have him, guess what? You walk in darkness. When he is the life and you don't have him, guess what? You walk in death. And and. He's reminding us where we came from. <clears throat> Remember who you used to be. It's too easy to get comfortable with the idea that I'm a child of God. And, and it's, it's too easy to, to come on a Sunday morning and lift our hands and our voices and sing these songs to God all about what he's done for us and who I am because of what he's done for me and my security that is in Christ and all of those things that we sing about. It is too easy to take it for granted and to forget who we actually are apart from Christ and where we actually came from. And amazingly, we can become arrogant and prideful because we're Christians. We, we ought to be so humbled by the fact that through no work of our own, through no value of our own, through no 
process of earning it that we have contributed, God saw us and loved us and chose us and made us his own children. We ought to be so blown away by that that every Christian ought to be absolutely humble. And yet, some of us end up being arrogant because we somehow have found the way. And we look down upon people who haven't found the way. And we become prideful and we begin to think that somehow we're intrinsically better than somebody else. And you may go, you know what? I don't feel that way about myself. And that may be true. Maybe you don't. But I'm going to tell you this, and I know you know this is true, that throughout America, that is the reputation of Christians. And somehow that reputation happened. And it's not because one or two people who named the name of Jesus happened to be arrogant and disrespectful and look down upon people who don't agree with them about everything. It's because this is a problem among the people of God. And so he's reminding them that they are not intrinsically better than anybody else. And he uses the example of the Jews because these Christians understand what it's like to be looked down upon by Jews because they were Gentiles. These are Ephesian Christians, right? They were Gentiles. They were not Jews, most of them. And when they came to Christ, they suddenly became a part of this amazing family of God that the Jews had always held to be their own dynamic, their own uh, right as the people of God. And now the people of God has expanded to anybody who becomes a follower of Jesus. And so he says, listen, those Jews, the attitude that you have all experienced from so many of them, where they see the world as having only two kinds of people. There are Jews and everybody else. There are circumcised and there are uncircumcised. There are God's people and there are outsiders. And because you've seen that, he says, among the Jews of your day, understand that you need to be careful of that same thing. Do you remember? That we could see this in a thousand places, but you remember in the Old Testament, the great story of David and Goliath, right? Goliath is coming out and challenging the armies of God every day, and then David shows up, and he was just there as a delivery boy. He was just pushing a shopping cart full of lunch sacks that he was bringing out to his brothers and some of the other soldiers. And when he gets there, he hears Goliath taunting the armies of God. And he's shocked to see all of these great warriors in all of their armor and with their, with their powerful weapons shivering in their boots and unwilling to answer the challenge of, of Goliath. And so what does he do? He walks up to somebody and goes, what is going on here? And they explain to him, well, you know, this guy comes out every day and challenges us. And, and David says this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he might taunt the armies of the holy God. He, his, his only way of insulting this guy is to say that he's uncircumcised. To the Jew, not being circumcised is the problem. You're either one of us marked by circumcision or you're one of them not marked by circumcision. Now, let me just be honest with you. Every time the subject of circumcision comes up in the Bible and I have to preach about it, it makes us all a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? I'm telling you, by the way, you know, this is one of those PG-13 subjects in the Bible, and if that makes you uncomfortable, then just avoid the rated R pages because there's a bunch of those too. But, but it would be so much easier on preachers if Jesus or if God had said to Abraham, listen, Here's going to be the mark that is going to be put upon you. I want you to cut off the tip of your finger. That would be so much easier to preach. Or if he said, listen, I want you to cut off the tip of your earlobe as a mark that you're followers of God. I would have appreciated that so much. That would be so much easier to talk about in mixed company, right? 
but the Bible didn't give me that option. Paul brings up this issue of circumcision, so let me just say, if you don't know what circumcision is, your parents will be happy to explain it to you over lunch today. Just ask them at the restaurant. They'll explain it. But here's the deal. Most of the Jews in the first century, they wore their circumcision as a badge of honor. And you go, that's such a weird thing. How, how can you even do that? Like, they're wearing clothes. It's not like anybody looks and goes, hey, that guy's circumcised. That guy's not circumcised, right? But to them... It was absolutely a source of arrogance and pride. It was their symbol. And of course it was covered up by clothes, but it didn't matter because if you were marked as a Jew, you carried yourself differently. You literally wore different clothes. You literally acted differently around other people. You saw yourself as someone who was special, someone who bore the very mark of God, and everybody else had to just uh, look up to you as you looked down upon them. But what was the point of the circumcision law in the first place? I mean, let's be honest. That is a really weird law. Why would God put something like that in place? It was to signify that the Jewish people had a special love relationship with God, that they were his chosen people. And it was symbolic. It was symbolic of God cutting away the callousness of hearts and giving people a new heart for him in a relationship with him. I, I would say, it, you know, it's like a wedding ring. Raise your left hand if you've got a wedding ring on your left hand right now. Okay? Now, is there anybody here? Go ahead, put your hands down. Is there anybody here who's married but doesn't have a wedding ring on right now? Okay. A few of those too, right? Now, let me ask you this. Sorry, I didn't want to point out anybody specifically, but let me just ask you this. The people who are not wearing a wedding ring, but they're married... Are they any less married than the ones who have a wedding ring? And let me just tell you this. If my wife divorced me tomorrow, I would be toast because my ring is, is in, encased in lobes of fat and I, I haven't taken this ring off since 1986 and it's not going anywhere without fireman's tools or something like that. So let's just say that somehow I was divorced, but I'm still wearing this ring. Does that make me any more married? No. Why? Because the ring is not the point. The ring is a symbol. The point is the love and the commitment and the relationship and the vows that we have taken. So if you have the ring, but you don't have the love and commitment, then it doesn't much matter that you have the ring. And if you have the love and commitment and yet you're not wearing a ring, it doesn't much matter that you're not wearing a ring. It's just a symbol. And that's the whole point of circumcision. But to the Jews in Paul's day, circumcision was a sign of pride no matter what was going on in your heart. And so that's why he tells them that you were formerly uncircumcised and the, 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 those who are called the circumcision look down upon you. But let me ask you this. When you look at Jesus' life, who was he the most harshly critical of? Yeah, the most religious Jews, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the ones who walked around in the flowing robes, the ones who wore the Word of God rolled up in a tiny scroll and stuck onto their foreheads so everybody could see it, the ones who wore hairstyles that would set them aside as a certain kind of priest, the ones who stood on the street corners and prayed out loud so that everybody would see them, 
and yet their hearts were not right. He gets into this in multiple places in the New Testament, but I want you to go to uh, Matthew chapter 23. Let's look at this and get a little sense of how God feels about this phenomenon. Matthew chapter 23. And what we're going to do is skim a little bit. We're going to start in verse 5. Matthew 23, verse 5, he's talking about the Pharisees, and here's what he says. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. Do you know what a phylactery is? That's that thing that goes on the forehead, right? And they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, because the priests who had the longest tassels, which were symbolic of their achievements and their holiness and their righteousness and their position in the synagogue, they were the ones who were the most respected. And he said, they set out just to get these tassels longer so people will respect them more. And then he pronounces what we call the eight woes upon the Pharisees. We go down um, to verse uh, 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. So I, I will destroy people who are hurting but when I get in front of a crowd, I make sure that my prayers are very impressive. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, or that is a, a convert to Judaism, and when he becomes one, look at this, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. That is a strong statement. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. Verse 18, and whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. And then he goes down and explains how what a ridiculous line of thinking that is and just calls them to be people of integrity who don't have to swear by anything. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Come on, Jesus, tell us what you really think. Wow. Those are the most respected, honored Jews in all of the society. And that's what he has to say to them. What he's saying is, if your heart is not given to God, and if your life is not about the things that God says it needs to be about, loving God and loving people, then don't give us this baloney about how holy you are because you happen to be circumcised, because you happen to have a Jewish surname, because you happen to be able to trace your lineage back to Abraham. That means nothing. It's like wearing a ring when you're not married. It just doesn't matter. <clears throat> and in fact, Paul reminds us that that same problem that stood out for the Jews 
and also stand out for us as believers in Christ. And he warns us about being arrogant about our religious standing. So we've got to be careful about this, you guys. We've got to be careful about thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We've got to be careful about thinking that we're so great because, you know, we've been um, exposed to some truth and we've been given the grace of God and the Holy Spirit lives within us. And therefore, we have the power within us to manage lives that are righteous. But here's the deal. Go ahead and raise your hand if you didn't sin this week. It will be your first sin of the week if you raise your hand. Go ahead. <laughs> right? We are seen as righteous. We are deemed to be righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is an incredible blessing that we didn't deserve. But it doesn't mean that we practically live righteously. And it is so great how we love to put ourselves on a high tower, look down upon somebody else, forgetting about the sins that I keep struggling with and point out the sins that they're struggling with and see ourselves as better than them. Guys, the church of Jesus Christ needs to be the humblest people in the world. And if we're not, it's no wonder they don't understand the gospel. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, of just who we were, we Christians, before Jesus came and rescued us. We were ungodly. We were unlovely. We were uninitiated. We were unwanted. But look at verse 12. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. And look at verse 12. <clears throat> Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Some of us are so used to being Christians that we've forgotten who we used to be, separated from Christ, excluded from the family of God, cut off from the promises and the covenants, without hope in the world and without a relationship with God. Guys, that's who we were. And if you're a Christian, I ask you, do you remember those days? Some of us seem to have forgotten. And we think that somehow we have God because we deserve His goodness and somehow we're good enough to get His grace. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're in Ephesians, it's just like uh, three, four books back to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> and I want to look at a passage that is very, very in your face and challenging. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, so let's just start there. Let's wipe away all this baloney about all roads leading to heaven. Let's forget about how, you know, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe. He's saying the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, by the way, I just asked you to raise your hand if you got through this last week without sinning and you didn't raise your hand, which tells me, you are unrighteous. He says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says, middle of verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you want to find a politically correct, incorrect passage that will make all of your friends angry on one level or another, 
Just post that verse on Facebook. Now, let me just clarify. Don't do that. <laughs> I have to say that because some of the stuff I see get posted on Facebook by Christians is so uh, hurtful to people who are un unbelievers. But, but you want to cause an argument? Just bring this up at a party. I mean, these are a bunch of titles given to sinners. These aren't just people who commit sins. These are life-dominating sins that become labels that we wear. Not just someone who tells a lie, but a liar. Not just someone who is sexually promiscuous, but a fornicator. That's the, that's the title, the crown that we wear. And he says, those people, and obviously it's not an exhaustive list, but he's talking about life-dominating sins. If your life is characterized by sin, then you are not a part of the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Now, it's offensive, it's hard to take, but here's the deal. It happens to be the truth. And because it happens to be the truth, we have to find ways to share with people this truth in non-condemning, non-arrogant, respectful ways that are based on love so that we can understand you can't just tell somebody Listen, accept Jesus so you can go to heaven and be saved when their question is, saved from what? Why do I need to get saved? I'm better than the guy next door. Listen, we're all on that list somewhere. Unrighteous. We all need the grace of God. When you look at that list, you go, man, that is a bunch of losers right there. I mean, talk about people who deserve to be judged, right? Well, yeah, but they don't deserve to be judged any more than you or me. We're all in the same boat, right? But look what it says in verse 11. I'm so glad it doesn't end there. Verse 11, such were some of you. If you mark in your Bible, you should underline, circle, highlight that word were. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So unrighteousness was the defining characteristic of your life. And now, if you're in Christ, if you've been washed, if you've been sanctified, if you've been justified, and that's all just a bunch of religious ways of saying if Jesus has given you a new life and you've been set free from your sin, then you are no longer characterized by the sin that used to own you. And now you may struggle with the flesh and you may struggle with temptation, but you are not defined by your sin. You're defined by your relationship with Jesus Christ. We were a hopeless mess when God found us. We couldn't have gotten to God if, if we had tried our whole lives. He wouldn't have chosen us based on merit, no matter how much we dressed up and put on our best act. God is so good to us. We were a mess, but he did not leave us that way. Such were some of you. Go back to Ephesians 2 now. We're going to pick it up in verse 13, Ephesians 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. What, what two groups is he talking about? Jews and Gentiles, right? He made both groups into one 
and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. There was a dividing wall that separated us from the people of God. And what did Jesus do about it? He tore it down. You go, I don't really know what, what you're talking about. I don't know about this dividing wall. I don't know where you're getting this. I want to show you a picture of the temple in the time of Jesus or the time of Paul. I know it's kind of complex. Let me point out to you, okay, what's going on. So, so in, the, in sort of the orangish, pinkish area here, you have what is called the court of the Gentiles, okay? So what that means is if you're a Gentile, you could go to the holiest place on earth, the temple in Jerusalem. You could go there, and the wall is about five feet high, so you could literally look over the wall, and you could see what's going on in the outer courts, but you couldn't get in. So you had the court of the Gentiles that was around the temple proper. And then you have the court of women, right? It's the largest court because women like to gather. And so it's the largest court. And, um, and then you have a court of Israel, right, which is inside right there when you go through to the court of Israel. Now, the court of Israel is small. It's interesting. It says the court of Israel. What it means is Jewish men, okay? And I don't know why, but I'm guessing that the men decided they like to walk past the women on their way in, but they don't really want to sit and chat with them. So I think that was the idea. So we have the court of Israel, okay? And then inside that, you have what's called the court of the priests, and that's where the altar is, okay? Only priests can go in there. You see how it's divided? Gentiles on the outside, women in the outer court, the men of Israel further into the middle, then the priests into the special area, the court of priests, and then you go into this other building, and you have what's called the holy place. And behind, in the holy place, there is a giant um, curtain that divides the holy place where only the high priests can go. Anyone of high priestly descent can go in there. And then beyond that curtain or that veil is the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where all the sacrifices were made. And that was the great place where only the high priest that year could enter, only on the Day of Atonement, and only if his own sins had already been atoned for, and he could go in there on that day to make the sacrifice. But you had to be the holiest of the holiest of the holy one day to go into that part, okay? So you have all these courts. This is the most segregated place in the world. Gentiles on the outside, Jewish women in this section, Jewish men in that section, people of a certain religious... Um, uh, accomplishments and degrees on the inside and only the highest ranking of them moving closer and closer to God and God symbolized by the most holy place and, and everybody else symbolized as being further from him, right? And if you were a Gentile, where were you? In the court of the Gentiles looking over a wall. It was as if they made it just five feet high so that you could just get on your tiptoes and see what you were missing. It was a mockery. You could come this far. It's one of these great wonders, and everybody wants to see it. If you're in Jerusalem, you've got to see the temple. But hey, if you're a Gentile, you don't get to be any part of this. In fact, 
do me a favor, don't lean against the wall when you're peering over. And in fact, literally, there are plaques along the wall. Let me see where, there, there are plaques every so many feet along the wall. There were, the temple's not there anymore, but there were plaques, and the plaques read this. Any Gentile who walks past this wall will be responsible for his own death on this day. You come in here, we'll kill you. And by the way, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll see that this is why the riot was caused when Paul went into the, into the court of Israel and somebody thought he had a Gentile guy with him and they basically beat him and took him away in a mob and he didn't even bring a Gentile with him. That's how upset the Jews would get if you, if you, um, if, if you went past the wall that you were not supposed to go past. And so what is he saying? He's saying there's always been a wall that if you didn't happen to be born into the Jewish faith or convert to the Jewish faith, which, by the way, involved circumcision. If you did not do that, then you could not be a part of the people of God. And this wall stood as a reminder with its plaques telling you you'll be killed if you think highly enough of yourself to walk into this court. And Jesus tore down that wall. Jesus said, I will not stand for the idea that somehow just by your race, somehow just by your nationality, somehow just by your bloodline, you have access to God and nobody else does. In fact, Jesus went so far as to go to the cross and to die on the cross to make sure we would have access to God. And what happened on that day when he finally breathed his last, said, it is finished, and gave up his spirit? What happened to that giant thick veil between the holy of holies and the most holy and the holy place it tore in half from the top down because god was saying this separation is over jesus tore down the wall guys this is a big deal to god and it ought to be a big deal to us go to galatians just two books to the left one book to the left Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 23, Galatians 3, 23. <clears throat> but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to a promise. Verse 28 is so great. There is no longer anymore Jews and Greeks. There's no longer a wall separating the Gentiles from the Jews. There is no longer, he says, men or women. There's no longer a court where only women can go and a court where only men can go. There is no longer slave or free man because in Christ we are all one. He removes the separation. Now let's make sure we understand this passage. Does this mean that somehow Jews stop being Jewish and Greeks stop being Greek? No, 
Does it mean that men are no longer men and women are no longer women? Of course not. What he's saying is those things that have always divided us, the categories that we put each other into, those things are gone because we're now all one under the same shower of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what marks us. And that which brings us together, that which unites us, and when we think of it that way and realize that that which unites us trumps everything else that separates us. And so it doesn't matter as much. It doesn't matter spiritually, let me say. It doesn't matter spiritually what your race is. It doesn't matter spiritually what your gender is. It doesn't matter spiritually what your age is. It doesn't matter spiritually what your nationality is. We can all be one in Christ. That which unites us far outshines that which ever separated us. Jesus trumps everything. He made us a family. And we are defined by what unites us and not by what separates us. And the American church needs to hear this today. Because we have more categories to separate ourselves from each other and from the outside world than we can ever shake a stick at. The walls of separation are broken down and destroyed by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. You and I are one. We're family. We have our uniquenesses. Yes, we have our different cultures. Yes, we have our different races and genders and languages and all that kind of stuff. But because of Jesus, those differences no longer define us and they no longer separate us. If you are a Christian, you are defined by the one thing, your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. I hate the fact that the most segregated hour in American culture is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings where the different races all go to their different congregations and all worship separately. I know that we've made progress on this in the last 30, 40 years. I understand that it's not as bad in Southern California as it is in some other parts of the country. But guys, we separate ourselves whether we are, whether we are Baptist or Pentecostal or Lutheran or, or just fill in the blank. We, we separate ourselves even often in the same church. There's a service for older people and there's a service for younger people. Never the two shall meet. Because if we did, one of us might have to compromise on the style of music we prefer. God forbid. And so we don't worship together. Guys, the church needs so badly to come back to that which actually unites us, which is Jesus Christ and Him alone. How can we claim to be one when we won't even worship in the same room? Now some of you are thinking, I'm not racist at all and I don't appreciate the implication well good for you i'm glad if you're not racist i am very glad but what does god when he when he sees what does he think when he sees us sort of choosing up sides in terms of our political views i mean i know it's an election year i you know if you're on social media you know it's an election year too right nothing but everybody insulting one another if you if you happen to be a democrat you must be a moron to be a republican if you're a Republican, only a fool could be a Democrat. And we just throw statistics back and forth at one another. And even in the body of Christ, we separate ourselves by who, which candidate that we support. We, we, we separate ourselves in all of these areas, political views, gender, uh, generation, denomination. And what is God thinking as he's looking, going, but wait, I bought them all. They're my family. All of them are my children. Why are they separating themselves? We're one in Christ. He matters. 
He matters more than everything else. So how do we justify judging others? How do we justify shunning others? How do we justify disrespecting people who see life from a different point of view when Jesus says that we're all one family? Remember, he's broken down the wall that separates us. We've all been adopted by God. You guys have heard me tell stories over the years about myself and my brother Eric and the way that I just abused the poor guy when we were growing up. If you've ever met my brother, he's the nicest human being on the planet. He's just a tremendous guy, doesn't want any trouble with anybody, just is a good guy, top to bottom, right? And I just tortured this guy. I just mistreated him and abused him and did any kind of hateful thing I could do to him when we were growing up. And yet, there's a day that stands out in my mind. We were teenagers, and we were out playing football, and, and my brother had a best friend, and the best friend started picking on me, giving me a load of grief. And Eric told him to shut up. And he said no, and he kept picking on me. And Eric walked up and punched his best friend square in the face. And I'm like, number one, I've never seen him hit anybody. Number two, why would he pick me over his friend? You know, he, he punched his friend, and they didn't speak for a year because his friend had mistreated his brother. Because when you're family, that trumps everything. Guys, what are we doing? How, how, do we, how do we not put our arms around each other and say, listen, nobody is going to separate me from my brother. Nobody is going to separate me from my sister. If we're family, we've got to start living like it. Now, I want you to go back to Ephesians, and we'll wrap it up with this. Go to Ephesians 2. 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You know what he's saying? We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm really patriotic. I am so thrilled that I'm an American. I don't take for granted the sacrifices that have been made to hand down the freedoms that I live in. I love this country, but I'll tell you one thing. If you ever somehow had the power to make me choose between my relationship with God and his people and my relationship with this country, that's an easy decision. I'm going to choose God and you guys every time. It means more to me to be a part of the family of God than it means to be a part of this great nation. I am a citizen of the kingdom first, and that means you're my brothers and sisters if you're in Christ. And you know what that means? And this is awkward to even say because I, I never met anybody who loves their family more than I do, but according to Scripture, Jesus said, you may even have to walk away from family members in order to walk with me. Do it. Because in Christ, we have a family. And, and I just want you to know something. I'm devoted to you. And I hope you're devoted to one another. Because the walls that separate us have been broken down. Jesus tore down the wall of separation. Let's not build it back up again. And let's certainly stop building new ones. 
We're one in Christ. And, and you may not like me, but I'm your brother. And I may think you are weird and obnoxious and annoying. Notice I'm not making eye contact with any specific. <laughs> but guess what? You're my brother. You're my sister. And I got your back. Because God has made us one. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for what you have done. We could not do for ourselves.